welcome to this edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round, which I can't wait to get out into the open air. Well, to prove this isn't a fiction, uh, in a radio studio, we're in the Club for Actors and Actors, which has been the scene of many of these, and I'm going to speak to, I think, the first OBE who has submitted himself to this process. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name is Ian Talbot, and I was in Doctor Who twice. Once I played a tech um, lab assistant, with Jeffrey Palmer, and I actually had lines. And the next time I was in four episodes uh, playing a monster. And I don't remember too much about it, except for I had, was quite a bit of latex, I think. And um, I know Tom Baker was very cross that I didn't have any lines. So after the read-through, and I'd sat there like a idiot, not saying anything, he said, this is disgraceful, Ian Talbot should have some lines. And he took me to the pub and got me drunk. And that was my first day. Well, that's a great way to start any job. Um, so, yes, I mean, Doctor Who and the Silurians is the one with Geoffrey Palmer, where you're a sort of slightly slightly cheeky young scientist, um, and Peter Miles is in it, and John Pertwee is the Doctor. It was directed by Tim Coombe, who directed you in a Z cast, so I'm assuming that's how you came to be in Doctor Who. It was, and Tim was with my agent at that time, and so uh, there was nepotism, I suppose, involved, but that's what an agent should do. Um, yeah, forgotten. And I don't really remember much about it, because when was it? In the late 60s? It was recorded in 69, shown in 70, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember much about it. I do remember the other one. And I remember um, the one where I played the monster. It shows how sophisticated it was. There was a dinosaur, I think. And during the filming, suddenly a voice said, Ted's in trouble. And this dinosaur started to wobble. And they stopped the filming and they unzipped it. And an elderly man called Ted came out, gasping for air. They gave him some oxygen and I thought, well, they'll send him home. But they didn't. They zipped him back up and we carried on. Ted was in the dinosaur. It just showed, and now you think of the special effects they have. I do remember it being huge fun. Well, it was that, yes, your second one uh, was the Leisure Hive. And the reason you don't have any lines is because you are really a lizard monster underneath the carapace of a lawyer. And I think that's why you had the latex, because they find your face hanging in a wardrobe to, to give the suggestion that actually your face is a, is a rubber mask. So it, there's a reason that you don't speak. It's not just that you... And, and so you have to be this sort of menacing presence whilst John Collin and David Haig argue with each other quite a lot. That's right. And was Adrian Corrie in it? That's right, yeah. I remember speaking to Adrian Corrie, who was huge fun. Yeah. Um, no, it was fun. I remember my son was about nine at the time and came to the studio and Tom Baker was extremely nice and my mother admitted my son a Doctor Who scarf and everybody made a great fuss of him. I thought I'd made it. I was in Doctor Who for four episodes. 
Directed by Lovett Bickford. Do you remember anything of Lovett Bickford? Isn't that a terrible thing to say? I don't really. Well, it was the only one he did, because he did the, the cardinal sin of making a beautiful production, but overspending while he did it, so he never did another Doctor Who. Really? Yeah. Although he did a good job. He did a very good job, but you don't spend too much money at the BBC. No, even more now. <laughs> well, look, it's... Um, the tip of an iceberg is Doctor Who. Um, so tell me how you'd, how you'd got to be there. I mean, we'll, we'll get on to directing later, but you started as an actor. What, what was that? Was that in your background? Uh, was it always going to happen? I did. I went to a secondary school in Surrey, and I used to take part in the school plays, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, and I wasn't very good at sport, but I was good at tennis. And I had the most wonderful English teacher called Muriel Knight. And I remember I was playing tennis for the school. And Muriel, I never called her Muriel, I always called her Miss Knight. She came down and said, Talbot, they're auditioning for the teaching course at Central School of Speech and Drama. You've got to apply. And my father said, that's fine, if you're going to qualify as a teacher, you can go to drama school. Well, quite honestly, if you could recite the telephone directory and you were male, you were going to be accepted on the teaching course, because it was really female top-heavy. So, and that's what I did. And halfway through the course, a man called Harry Moore um, said to me, Ian, I think you could act. But don't tell the school because you'll lose your grant. Complete the course. And in fact, Maureen O'Brien, who was on the teaching course with me, became one of the first assistants, didn't she? She did. She did. So Harry got her into it, and I think she did it for quite some time. Um, anyway, I then, I say immodestly, got a distinction on the teaching course. But I didn't want, to, and part of the prize was to be offered a post. Uh, I think it was Dar Dartford College or somewhere. It's quite, you know, and I said, oh, fine. Uh, during my time at drama school, my father died, and he had a great, uh, great friends called Bill and Mouse Court. They're both dead now, so I can say she was alcoholic. He was a heavy drinker, but they were very, very wealthy and had a sauna and a swimming pool in Isha. And I was sitting by the pool one day and she said, well, Ian, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I really want to act. But I, I did the teaching course, so I didn't do a showcase, so I didn't get an agent. She said, hang on a minute. She made a phone call and she came back and she said, now, a long time ago, I knew the manager of the Garrick, and I won't say his name, and I knew he was embezzling money. And I said, I'll keep my mouth shut, but one day I'll call in a favour. And you're the favour. And that's how I got into the theatre. And I started as an assistant stage manager in Barrow in Furness, and she said, a week Monday, you're going to, uh, Don McKechnie is the artistic director, and that's how I started. So I got in via the Mafia. Fantastic. Well, and funny, because you, you won't know, the, um, the monster you play in Doctor Who is called a faux master, and one of the subtext jokes of the piece is that that is an anagram of mafioso. Really? Yes, because that was what they were trying to suggest well, that the um, monsters were. I was destined to play that part. <laughs> so... Uh, starting in the theatre, um, was it a conscious thing for a young actor? Did you, did you want to gravitate towards television, or was it was it just you went where everything took you? No, I'd love to have done uh, more television, but I didn't. I did get the odd part, but it was theatre that I got really. Um, 
And of course, in my day, when I started in 1964, you started as an assistant stage manager and then played parts. I mean, I remember being in The Merchant of Venice when I was 22 playing old Gobbo and young Gobbo was 58. It didn't make sense. But <laughs> young Gobbo, anyway, old Gobbo wasn't the biggest part. Um, and then you, you were elevated into becoming an actor and that's how I started really and um, my late wife Liz Gebhardt did lots of television uh, and made her name really in a series called Please Sir and because of that I was extremely lucky because she was earning the money and I was able to go off to various repertory companies and play the most wonderful parts and not worry about paying the rent really. So it was just, I know when I started um, I wanted to do sitcoms and I haven't really done that many. She wanted to do Shakespeare, I ended up doing lots of Shakespeare and she ended up doing sitcoms, so perverse really. I was just very lucky that there was lots of theatre around then and it was because of, um, I was actually in Wales doing a production of uh, Beer Gint and a director called Richard Digby Day saw me in that and then I auditioned for Regent's Park and we'll probably get on to that but that was a huge, huge step in my career really and I didn't know I was going to be involved with Regent's Park for quite as long as I was. 20 years? Well, 20 years I ran it but I first worked there in 1971 and when I got an audition because I'd just done repertory um, and uh, you know the odd episode like Doctor Who and the odd bit of telly I thought if I got an audition for Regent's Park I'll be thrilled thinking I might get one of the mechanicals if I was lucky anyway I suspect the television name had dropped out of playing Bottom and much to my amazement I got the part of Bottom in 1971 which I then went on to play 11 times I was going to say it seems to it seems to be a part that keeps coming back to you do you I mean, do you have to go in with a blank canvas when you do a part that you've played before amongst different company and start again? Is there ever a joke that you go, that worked so well last time, I've got it again? Well, I think there's an element of both, really. I think that you try and hang on to some of the jokes. Uh, I got known for rolling in a barrel in the play scene, and uh, one child called me, um, uh, what did he call me, not barrel, Mr... I think it was what it was. Anyway, it became Barrel Tablet, that's it. I was suddenly christened Barrel Tablet. But what happens is that I, I believe it is going to be different because you're working with different actors and you try and have an open book. Um, but inevitably, if a joke works, you you think, well, let's see if it will work with them. And I, was, I think I was quite good. I didn't do them all the same. But it is the most incredible part. Uh, and I did it up the on a British Council trip right up the east coast of Africa. And I, I took that job, it was nine weeks, um, because I wanted to see the country. And we went to Syria, the Seychelles, Mauritius, it was incredible. But that isn't what I remember. I remember there were four actors. We'd arrive in the bush. What I remember is the reaction of the children, because you realise what must it have been like to go to the first night of A Midsummer Night's Dream. You don't know a character's going to come on in an acid's head. And these children didn't know. And the reaction was quite extraordinary. Um, I remember getting off a plane, a very small plane, uh, and I had to have the ass's head on my lap because it was so small. So as a joke, really, there were about 200 children. 
I put the ass's head on when I got off the plane, and they all surrounded me and cheered and clapped and everything. Then I took the ass's head off, and they all ran away screaming. I don't know whether that says something about the way I look, but it said something about their culture as well, because laugh lines in Regent's Park, like... Um, I don't know, I can't think now, but when I said the line, my soul is in the sky, it brought the house down. Well, it's not funny, but to them it was because of the different culture. I found it utterly intriguing, and I've directed it many times and been in it, and it is my favourite play. It must be odd directing an actor in a part that you've said. Yes, it is. Um, and the last time I directed it was at the Old Globe in San Diego. And I never really worked with a, apart from Miles Anderson, who played Bottom, who I knew. The American actors, they have a phrase, they say, I've just got to lock this in. So you'd say something like, um, if you pause slightly, or if you go there, just let me lock this in. And it, it, I did enjoy it, but it was quite a slow process. They don't, they don't have the same sense of humour as we do. So what do they say that they, they, they have to just wait and, 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 and sort of assimilate what, they're, what yeah. they're going to be doing? Yeah, which I suppose was a fault on my part. But I was saying, if you move down there and do that, you'll get a huge laugh, but it's up to you, you know. Anyway, it was fun, and I, I had three weeks off, and my wife and daughter came out, and we went to Disneyland and did all that. But isn't that the most wonderful thing about this business? It was at about quarter to six, four years or three years ago, and my agent phoned and said, do you want to go to San Diego? Well, that wasn't on the agenda, and I was free. Well, it, it's a wonderful business when you suddenly get opportunities like that. And I have travelled abroad quite a lot and it's great to somebody else to pay the fare. Mm. I worked for Derek Nimmo a lot and did a lot of those tours and stayed in these five-star hotels um, and adored it and then stayed on when the company went off. I went wonderful places. So. But it's a curious thing that you've managed to do because a lot of people that I've spoken to who have a good acting career, but then go and do something else, and then have equal success doing something else, and are quite happy to turn their back on acting. You've had this phenomenal career as a director, but then you do hairspray, and, you, and, and this business has a very short memory, so I'm surprised they don't just all go, oh, well, you're a director now, and, and yet you've managed to still keep doing acting when you can fit it in, or when you want to, I don't know which it is. Well, I don't get many offers now for acting. I did do um, Kiss Me Kate in the proms, playing Baptista last summer, that came out of the blue. Um, I think I was naive. I knew that I should leave Regent's Park. I, I felt 20 years was long enough, I was coming up to a big birthday, so I gave two years prior notice. But because I had been lucky, and really, I hadn't ever been out of work more than about two weeks, I just, I, it was just, in, nobody knew who the hell I was, but I just kept working. Then I rang the, rang the park and I thought, well, that's all right, I'll go back to being a jobbing actor. Well, in fact, Chris Luscombe was very kind, because he did The Last Dream that I did in the park, he cast me as Falstaff in Merry Wives at the Globe, and that's what I was going to do. And suddenly my agent said, you've got to go up for Hairspray. I said, well, I've never done a big musical. I did The Boyfriend in the part, but I... So he said, go for it. And miraculously, I got it. But it was my saving grace in a way, because suddenly, like I got a lovely letter from Bill Kenwright saying, good luck with your retirement. 
Well, my daughter was very young, well, even younger than now, and I thought, I can't retire. And it sort of made the business aware that, in fact, I was going to carry on. And, and the directing has sort of taken off. I, I think part of it is because uh, I work with young producers, a lot of young producers, who quite like maybe the knowledge I've acquired along the way. Um, and it's, it's really exciting. I've worked in places and for people I never thought I would. I've started doing quite a lot of new plays, which I like, talking with it. And I am a very lucky man that I'm still chugging along. Well, a big part of that is, as, as we've alluded to, the, the Regent's Park. But I, I, I haven't quite made the connection. You were an actor and a working actor. And you say you were asked to become artistic director of Regent's Park. So who who made that connection that the actor Ian Talbot would make a good artistic director of the Open Air Theatre at Regent's Park? I can tell you exactly what happened. I worked at Regent's Park um, for 10 years and had a really nice career doing the summer in the park and then every Christmas for the same producer, David Congo, I would play Toad in Toad of Toad Hall. So I had a little gap in the spring and the autumn where I'd try and fit in a little bit of telly or go off to a repertory company or whatever. And after 10 years, I thought I really, I think I should, it's becoming too safe. And that's part of the reason why I left Regent's Park, because I think once you feel safe, I don't think you become creative. Anyway, during my time as an actor there, I used to run galas, fundraising galas, which were quite successful on a Sunday night. And I think David Conville saw me have a, a, a skill, if you like, for leading a company and organizing it. It was always hairy. I went off to the RSC, and on my fifth year there, uh, before I went to the RSC, David gave me the opportunity to direct Androcles and the Lion and Much Ado About Nothing. And I was quite daring about Androcles in as much that I made it a promenade production which hadn't been done there before. I remember Jack Tinker complaining that he had to stand for the second act. <laughs> um, a bit grumpy about it. And I went off to the RSC and then David arrived in Stratford and said, I'm going to step down. Would you consider taking over Regent's Park? Well, it would never happen now. You'd have to fill in an application and, I don't know, almost pass an exam. And I said, why have you chosen me? I'm a jobbing actor. He said, well, you ran the one season and I thought you did it well. You clearly love that theatre. Well, think about it. So I went back and I said to Liz, I've been offered to run Regent's Park. And she said, well, do you want to do that? So I said, well, the one thing I don't want to do is that when I'm 80, I don't want to say, well, I was offered Regent's Park. And I said, the worst I can do is fail. And if I fail, I've done all right so far. So I originally signed on for three years. And I loved it. And the first production I directed there was Two Gentlemen of Verona, which fortunately was a hit. And I managed to get quite a lot of people who had been at the RSC with people like um, Lynn, um, I think of her saying name in a minute, uh, Lynn and uh, Tom Mannion, then uh, people I'd worked with. I did a film in Holland, Peter Bayliss, Peggy Mount, all these people. So it had quite a high profile and it was a success. 
And then I said, okay, I'll stay another two years. So that was five years. And then I said, I, okay, would you, they wanted me to stay on. I said, I'll do it on a yearly basis. For you as well. So that if you think I'm mucking it up, you can get rid of me. And I stayed for 20 years, and I am proud of the legacy. Uh, there was a musical produced there called Bashville, written by Benny Green, but I sort of introduced the musical regularly into the repertoire. And things like the lottery grant, um, and my late wife Liz suggested I did a children's play, and so I introduced that. And then I can remember stupid things like getting all the seats covered. This was huge achievement. I mean, we didn't have any money whatsoever. Uh, but I did leave it with a million pounds in the bank. My goodness. Um, and I was proud of what we'd achieved, and I think Tim Sheeder now has done a wonderful job, and its profile is even... And that people say to me, well, how do you feel about Tim and getting shows into the West? And I said, look... 20 years, well, 36 years of my life was spent at that theatre. If it had gone down the Swanee, I would have been heartbroken. It was my choice to leave. And I, th I think it's profile now, and I go to the press nights, uh, and then I sit there and I think, oh, I used to run this theatre, you know, but otherwise, and I left in 2007. So that's the bridge, really. But um, I always remember one of the directors, Robert Lang, wonderful actor. Oh, yes. Yeah, he said to me... Um, you would never have got this job in the present climate. Not that he didn't think I was doing a good job. He said, it was done really in a handshake. So I, I'm extremely lucky. You don't run a theatre by that. You go through several interviews and CVs and I don't know what else, you know. Well, I remember, um, I'm sure, now correct me if I'm wrong, because the internet's not very good at these sorts of things, but I'm, I'm, I never trust the internet anyway. But I'm sure I have a memory of reading a review of A Love's Labour's Lost that you did, that Benedict Cumberbatch was the king of Navarre. Was that a, was that a That's piece? absolutely right. And Rachel Kavanagh and myself, in those days, well, we gave him his first job. Because I was at university with him, you see, so that's why it registered with me then. And well, now, of course, he's, he's who he is. Who he is. And I have to say that when I see Ben... He hasn't changed in his personality. He's still as friendly. He's not starry. Uh, and f ironically, my wife now, Claire, did a show in South Africa with Wanda, Ben's mum, and Dad, Tim went out, um, and it, it just for a holiday, really. But so, yeah, and, and that's another thing about Regent's Park. You're going to ask me who now. But the people that I gave their first job to, Samantha Spiro, Reese Evans, Ben, we've said, um, oh, there's so many others. That, and I, the only time, and I don't think I'm a mean person, is when I get beady, is if I go and see a show and they don't quote that they worked in Regent's Park in their biog, I get quite miffed about that. <laughs> oh, quite right, because, and it's even more, to, I mean, wearing both hats now, and obviously, um, you know, um, a lot of these interviews, you know, conclude with that acting is now harder than it ever was. And, and, and from a director's point of view, how do you, and do you, do you actively try and counteract that in yourself? try to discover new people when the climate is often with, you know, a box office casting. Well, that's an interesting question. In Regent's Park, I used to get about 3,000 CVs. They'd probably get far more now. And I didn't have the money to have a casting director to begin with, so I used to take the CVs home. And people said to me, 
how on earth? Because then it's different now because they cast for each play. I used to do cross casting and try and create, because that was my background, I suppose, a repertory company within Regent's Park. So inevitably, if they couldn't sing, I knew I couldn't cross cast them because there had to be some way that you could get a, not, just discard some people. But I always made it a point of having a third of the company out of people who had written to me personally, only because I just feel it's just churning over the same... And we had some wonderful actors who came who just wrote to me and couldn't get an agent, came along and did general auditions. I, the way I used to cast in the part, there were always two other directors. I would uh, say to those directors, make a list of 20 actors you like to work with. I'll do the same. And invariably, there'd be about five that we all liked. And that was the starting point, really. I used to do one-off casting sometimes uh, in the musical, just for leads, because then, because when we were doing in repertoire the Shakespeare's, people said, oh, you had five weeks rehearsal for the musicals. I didn't, because I couldn't rehearse on a matinee day, so I could rehearse three days a week when we were doing three matinees a week. So actually, I used to get the musicals on in two weeks. I had 14 days rehearsal. And when I think back, some of those musicals, how we got them on, I don't know. But we did. And inclement weather aside, what are the unique aspects of directing for open-air theatre as opposed to all the other, the other theatres? There's a sharing that uh, you're all in it together and if it does pour with rain you're all going to get wet uh, and if it's cold you're all going to get cold uh, it, it's just something you in it becomes like one big family and, and there's a sort of festive occasion about it to run an open air theatre, it's a bit different now with global warming, but certainly some nights. I remember when we did Henry V, you couldn't see for the fog, and it was freezing, And but it had to the atmosphere. Um, you, you have to want to go. I mean, it must be the same at the Globe, because they run their season quite late. It must be freezing. Well, you go because you want to go to that theatre. So there's an, a feeling of excitement before the curtain goes up. And I think sometimes in the West End Theatre, the audiences can be a bit jaded. They feel it's the fact, this is the hit show, we better go. Um, you see them on a Saturday night, they're being dragged around the shops on Saturday matinee. Uh, I just felt it was, and I, I encouraged uh, people to stay in the bar afterwards and the audience used to meet the actors. It was lovely. I, I love the dream, but also I did it because it was our grant. It was the only thing I could guarantee that would... It's a bit like... And I do them. I'm doing Wimbledon Panto this year, but it's like Wimbledon Theatre. They get, earn enough money on the Panto to subsidise them for the rest of the year. Yeah. And that's what the dream did for me. Because of... Yes. So, well, that's... that's you know, it's show business. You have to balance the books as well as... Yeah. I was interested because you, you mentioned Toad of Toad Hall, and I noticed on one of your toads, Mole was Richard Goulden, who, if I'm right, hadn't he been the first ever Mole? He was. And carried on playing Mole forever. He was, and uh, he never ever knew my name. He always called me Toady. Um, and he had a book. You know, you asked me a question about did I do the same jokes in Midsummer Night's Dream? He had, his script was like a Bible. And he's seen toads come and go. And if you invented something which he approved of, 
he'd say, hang on a minute, Toadie, I'm going to put this in the margin. Now, David Conville, who produced all these, has got this book. So you've got people like Nicky Henson, and he would attribute the mark. So I, you really feel you've made the Hall of Fame when it went, Toadie, 19, whatever it was. He always listened to the archers. He never washed his costume. He um, he was jolly good. The kids loved him. And he, he used to fall asleep. Towards the end of when he played it, he, he didn't do it the last few times I did it because he was getting on a bit. But um, he used to come out of the molehill and there was a member of the stage management with a long pole. So when he used to have to come up and go, scrape and scrabble, scrabble and scratch, they'd prod him, prod him up the bum and he'd wake up because he'd fallen asleep because we had the song Wind in the Willows before and of course he dropped off but he was wonderful he had a great um, and he was so famous during the war playing a character called Mr Penny on the radio which he adored because he could walk around and nobody knew who he was but he used to say and Toadie whenever I open my mouth in a restaurant they'd say it's Mr Penny so, but he loved the anonymity of, of going around and people not recognising him but he was cheeky and he used to leave the stage door of Regent's Park and he lived um, on Oakley Street off the King's Road and he'd uh, get out as quickly as he could collapse in the middle of the road a car would come to a halt and say are you alright Mr Gordon I got a dizzy spell and they'd give him a lift home and then he'd go to a wine bar and drink into the early hours he was canny <laughs> well canniness aside in terms of um, actors that you worked with as a as a as a young actor, and, you, and you did five was it five years ago? Yeah. So, who are the actors that you think purely on an acting basis that you learnt that you learnt from, or who had techniques that you that you admired when seeing them up close? Well, I think Michael Gambon is really the one that, um, and I, it, it meant a lot to me because I'd never understudied in my life. And when I was asked to join, they said, "Would I understudy?" The Fool. And Pete Postlethwaite was going to understudy Lear. So my wife said, well look, you're going to have understudy rehearsals with Pete Postlethwaite. And I said, okay. Uh, and Tony Sher had to play the violin and everything. And um, I don't know how much I can swear really. Can I swear? Okay, I'm going to swear quite a lot now. And we were, I was a walking understudy and in the pub, The Dirty Duck, Michael Gambon said to me, um, if you ever come on stage as the fool, I'm going to open my arms and say, hello, little And we all had a lovely laugh. And I, because I wasn't in it, I used to watch videos in the stage manager's house opposite the stage door. And one day, I always remember I was watching Jaws, and the stage manager knocked on the door and said, Ian, Ian. I said, it's the end of Jaws. And she said, Tony Sher snapped his Achilles tendon you've got to come over. And Tony was silly because he carried on for the rest of the performance and consequently did more damage to his ankle. Anyway, it meant that I was then going to play the fool. And I always equate it a bit like they paid to see um, Frank Sinatra and Vince Hill was on because once, because Tony had scored a great success and they said the part of the fool be played by Ian Talbot. I was shaking. Anyway, as I went on, Honestly, loud enough for the first three rows to hear him, he opened his arms and he said, Hello, little <laughs> And there was method in his madness because I was so shocked. 
I forgot all about it. And when we were, there was, uh, Bob Crowley designed the set, and we were on this sort of contraption that went up like a lift, and he was going blow winds, etc. First floor, ladies' underwear, then a bit more of Shakespeare, second floor, uh, haberdashery or whatever. I thought, I cannot believe. But in the rehearsal room, when I watched the final run-through of that, Adrian Noble directed it. It was the finest performance I've ever seen. And then I think Mike would agree. He just felt that the set overtook the performances. And Tony was hunchback and a clown and big feet. And I think he just thought, I've done it. But I learned so much from his understanding of the text and his sense of fun is just extraordinary. But it was, I mean, I was so lucky. We had, who did we have there? Um, Tom Mannion, I've mentioned before, Pete Postlethwaite, uh, Helen Mirren, Derek Jacobi, Alan Armstrong. So many names have gone out of Your my head. The first season had Esmond Knight uh, in uh, the Henry V. Was he the chorus in the Henry V? Yeah, Esmond Knight was in Henry V at um, the Arundel Festival that we started. And we had to come through the auditorium. And then he was the chorus. So we went, all went into the tiring house. And when we were in the tiring house, we had to then say to Ez, off you go. And the person who said off you go pointed him in the wrong direction. And this is no exaggeration. So the performance started like this. Because he stepped off the stage because he couldn't see. So it went, oh, for a f as he fell. It wasn't really what Arundel was expecting. So they had to pick him up and then we started again and then it was fine. And I, we didn't get paid. I remember we were given tea and there was booze in the luggage rack on the way back. But stories like this, they only come back to me when I'm talking to somebody like this. It's so rich and you know, I, I've got to do a speech. Uh, at a dinner in about a month's time. So I am racking my brains, but you forget certain things. I mean, I remember sitting in my office, which was on site in the dream, and it had been a miserable, drizzly afternoon, and two quite proper old ladies passed my office, and I used to watch them, and one of them said, that was the most wonderful, wonderful dream. And the other one said, yes, too bad it was a wet one. And you see, they had no idea what they'd said. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I made it a point when I was at Regent's Park to um, be, have quite a high profile. I'd be in the bar before the show and say hello to the customers, and I ran the Friends of the Theatre, which I don't think Tim does so much of. Um, I liked all that. And I liked uh, doing question and answers with them, because I feel... Friends of the theatre are terribly important. They're loyal. They'll turn up, whatever happens. At, at the RSC, I suppose David Conville might have noticed that I started the fringe of the RSC with Roger Michel. We wrote a review together, which started the whole thing off. And then from that, I did a Joe Orton play, The Good and Faithful Servant, with Peggy Mount, and recruited all the old ladies and the old people who were friends of the theatre. And we went to the Almeida and did it. I can't believe now that I had the nerve to do it. I just said, oh, can we come and do this play at lunchtime? And all these old OAPs came up from Stratford just for the day and did it. We did it for about a week. Well, things like that, I think, 
you know, I did um, the Dylan in Stratford, walking around Stratford, and when we, an actor called Graham Turner and I were policemen, and we were on bicycles, and as we came down, we cultivated an old lady, and I can't remember her name, and she'd wave us, and she'd have two glasses of sherry, because we knew we had five minutes, so we'd have a glass of sherry, and then cycle on. Things like that are just rich, and, you know. So I'm going to mention some actors to you that you've worked with who have a tangential uh, relationship with Doctor Who, which means that we... Um, thank you. Which means that... Uh, I know the listeners will be... Fascinated. You directed um, Bruce Purchase in uh, Arden of Favishes. Did you direct that? Or you know you were in, you were in that with Bruce, Bruce Purchase, who gives a great term as the pirate captain in an episode He was a lovely man. Um, yeah, we did that. Um, Mark Rylance was in it, John Bowe, Jenny Agatha, and Bruce was a great giggler, but he was terrific, and he'd been a stalwart of the RSC when I joined. It was the first play I did. And I remember that John Bowe had a dog called Rex. We were at the other place. And I wasn't on stage, but he had to go and say he was playing, and David Bradley was in it, and he had to say, um, I'm threatening you. And at this cue, he said, I'm going to set my dog on you. The dog outside had to bark. And it was my job outside, Rex, his dog was called, to have a biscuit. And when I'd listen, and then I'd go like that, Rex would go, woof, woof, and I got it right every time. <laughs> see, my stage management train. <laughs> I've forgotten that, you see. That's quite bizarre. Yeah, Bruce. I did, and also, I think, I forget what else I did with him. Well, you mentioned David Bradley, who, you know, for many years was was very much a, su a supporting character actor, and he's one of those actors that has now, I mean, um, he's he cornered played, the market. And he played William Hartnell in the, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary. He did, and film. he was great. Yeah, um, but and I saw him in, you know, supporting roles at the RSC over the years, and gradually they got bigger and bigger and bigger. That's a great, that's a great wave for, that's a great upward swerve for an actor, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and he, when I first met him, I'm actually godfather to his daughter. Um, when he first joined, he'd started to lose a lot of weight because apparently he had stomach like me. And then he found he had a wheat allergy. So they found what it was. And in a strange way, the new look is what gave him that career because, he, he, you know, he plays the caretaker in Harry Potter. And, uh, yeah. It's that drawn, yes, that drawn character. Yeah, apparently he was quite... Filled out before I turn. Yeah. And, I mean, nothing to do with Doctor Who, but he's an actor worth talking about. You've already mentioned him. Mark Rylance, who seems quite an extraordinary theatre uh, figure in modern theatre. Well, Mark, when, I, when Mark arrived for that season, he was playing quite good parts. Uh, and he was playing, I forget the name of the character, in Arden of Favisham. But you knew he was special. And within a few weeks, they'd changed all his parts, and he was suddenly playing Ariel, and he played Tranio, because uh, you knew he was gifted. And it's good you've mentioned him, because he was a really good friend to me at Regent's Park. He was running the Globe, and we would phone each other and say, what are you doing? And he'd say, well, I'm thinking of that. And I said, okay, I won't do it then. Uh, and the only time he said, look, I am going to do the dream. So you do it this year, but don't do it next year, because I'm going to do it. But I kept in touch with him. I played poker with him. And uh, when he did that Twelfth Night, in which he was wonderful as Olivia, it was done at the Inner Temple. And I played um, 
for Toby Belch, which I was really honoured that he asked me to do it. And then, what's the name of the guy who's just won the Oscar? Eddie Redmayne. He played Viola. Yeah. And he's another lovely man. And it looks like he's going to win another Oscar, the next film he's doing. But that was special. And then I couldn't go into it in the Globe because I was running Regent's Park, which I regret, because you then went to Broadway and I loved that. But anyway, I was in it in its original concept. Yeah. Mark was great. Um, and he used to ride a motorbike with a, an actor called Jimmy Gardner. He used to ride on the back. And he it, wrote Jimmy Gardner's obit for The Guardian, actually, I seem to I'm sure he yeah, would. Because yeah. when I used to play poker with Mark, Jimmy used to play as well. Right, listeners, Jimmy Gardner is Idmon in the Doctor Who story Underworld, just just to provide context. <laughs> there you are. Great sort of sort of Sidney Bromley type of actor, wasn't yeah. he? Big beard and big... Big beard. He's quite a small man. He was always a hippie. Yeah. Uh, and another actor who I believe was he working at Regent's Park when he died was Bernard Breslau. But did he do a Doctor Who? He, he, yes. He, he turned up thinking he was playing a... He was the leader of the Ice Warriors, who he thought might be big Viking warriors, and they, they were big Martian warriors, all encased in fiberglass and latex. So he's in it, and he's the sort of lead baddie, but you can't tell it's him, because he's, he's encased in rubber. Well, welcome to the club. Yeah. Um, he, you know, was a really, really intelligent man. He had an extensive library, first editions, and he kindly, when he... Uh, his widow, Liz, left me three first editions, which was really nice of her. He came to the park one night. He was playing, um, it was in Taming of the Shrew, Grumio. And he crossed the picnic lawn. I said, hello, Bernie, how are you? And he said, I'm fine, mate. And then the company manager, about ten minutes later, came back and said, Bernie's not very well. I went into the green room and he'd suffered this massive heart attack. So I cleared the green room and we got the paramedics to come. And I think he was dead when they put him into the ambulance. But I, I don't know, but anyway, I followed. And inadvertently, I was in the room when they told his widow that Bernie had died. He'd had a medical about two weeks before. But the worst thing about this story is that Liz, who I was in the room, as I say, was with one of her sons, and she just said, will you please not release this to the press until I've told my other two boys. I don't want them to find out by the media. And in the car on the way home, it was on the nine o'clock news, because one of the ambulance drivers had had a backhander, and I think that's despicable. You know, and that's how two of her sons found out that their dad was dead. Isn't that a terrible that's story? Terrible. But Bernie did lots. He played Malvolio. Um, and he never knocked the Carry On series. But he played Prospero, I think, at Ludlow. He did indeed. Yeah. And Bernie also played Bottom in The Dream. He was a lovely man. Made me laugh a lot. So, you were awarded an OBE for your services to the theatre. Are such things... I mean, it's actors in their nature to downplay things, but one of the reasons we do this is because we quite like being, hearing people applaud us. So is a, is, a, is a medal, is it something that you... What do I say to that? I, I know lots of people turn it down. I suddenly got this letter. I was terribly proud that 
I thought somebody's noticed I've been running a theatre for 20 years. Um, I didn't know so many people. I recommended that I got, got it. Uh, and I was proud, yeah. And now, because I think maybe another stage in my career, at this stage in my life, I am going to try and cultivate doing after-dinner speeches. And an OBE really helps. So I've just had some cards printed saying Ian Talbot OBE, and I feel quite embarrassed about it. But no, if you've got it, use it. My wife was terribly proud. Um, and the Queen gave it to me, and I remember, um, what's the name, Des Lyne was there, and what's the name of that very eminent actor, oh, I'll think of his name in a minute, but he was about 80, and I think he's still alive. Anyway, the Queen went up, and we were all given instructions, and I went up, and the, the man next, the equerry next to obviously gives a clue of who you are, so he must have said, um, open-air theatre. So when I got there, she said, you must be the bravest man in the world to run an open-air theatre. And I said, well, I don't do it anymore, ma'am. Why? Well, I, I thought 20 years was probably long enough and I give somebody else a chance. She said, oh, what are you doing now? So I don't know why I said it. I said, I'm in hairspray. Hairspray? What's that? I said, it, it's a West End musical, and she said, oh good, you're busy, and with that she thrust her hand, and that was my, but I did have a little chat with her, and I thought, oh, that was the second time I'd met her, I met her the first time, when uh, she opened the second Mersey Tunnel, that gives you some idea how long ago it was, and I was at Liverpool Playhouse, and I, I was with two actresses, who said they didn't recognize the monarchy and they weren't going to... Can I tell you this story? Yeah, if you like it. Anyway, yeah, I will. We were doing a very obscure Goldoni play called The Venetian Twins. And I came from... It was 1971 because Richard Digby let me off from rehearsals to go up to go to this Royal Variety performance. And Bernard Delfont was trying to get his knighthood, and so it employed all people who had either been born in Liverpool or had appeared. So there were people like Jimmy Tarbuck, Rex Harrison, um, Ken Dodd, uh, Frankie Vaughan, all these people, and um, Patricia Routledge. And I did this excerpt from the play, and it was pretty obscure in its entirety, but to do an excerpt, it was hopeless. She stepped forward and said, you'll know you're going to die a death. So I said, oh, she said, and so am I, because I'm doing a poem. But we legits will stick together. So Bernard Delphine, she was obviously a well-known face. She stepped forward holding my hand, and he looks as if to say, get rid of him. She said, no, Mr. Talbot's standing next to me. So anyway, after the show, well, during the show, it overran, and I didn't know that when the royal train goes, it goes on time. And Ken Dodd realized he wasn't going to get on. So he went on before me and overran. And he was at the peak of his career. And then I went on, dying a death. I can remember now, not a, you didn't hear a titter. So we finally got up to the line to meet the Queen. And she'd gone along the line. And she whispered something to the equerry. He came back to me and said, have you met Her Majesty? And I heard myself saying, no, you see, the Diddy men pushed us out of the way. And I said, would you now go over there? So we're now, the three of us, who had died to death, standing top of the bill, next to Rex Harrison, who's swaying slightly, having had a few drinks. And Bernard Delphon comes around the corner and mouths to me, 
what's your name? So I thought, well, I've died a death, I'm not going to tell him, so I just mumbled. Eventually he had to leave and go and get a program to find out who the hell I was. And when he came to us, he said, Mom, this is Jenny Christ, Chrissy Idden, and Ian Talbot from the Liverpool Playhouse. And she said, I just want to say how very difficult it must have been to have followed Doddy, and I thought the three of you did it nobly. Whereupon the two said they wouldn't curtsy, the lowest curtsy you've ever seen. Now, don't you think that's wonderful that she appreciated that we had died a death? And I just love the idea. She said Doddy, not Mr. Doddy. <laughs> anyway, that's the two occasions I met the Queen. Cured, cured Republicanism in Absolutely. <laughs> well, look, um, I think we should have the last uh, ten minutes where we talk without the microphone on, but I, I guess the thing you always ask somebody who's still working, uh, if they have any things they still want to achieve, any, any, any notches on your CV you would like to... Uh, yeah, I don't think it will happen now. I would love to have run a theatre uh, abroad for about a year. I've started doing productions at drama schools, and it's something to do. It's not being immodest. You acquire a knowledge that you don't actually know you have. And you go to a drama school, and they ask you a question which you think is absolutely obvious, but of course they don't know. You think they're quite mundane questions, but, and it's quite nice to pass it on to the people who are going to hopefully have a career in the theatre. So I think I'd like to do after, I'd like to do um, another five years when I'm approaching 80. I'd probably um, quite like to do cruises and do after dinner speeches and reminisce like I am with you. And are you optimistic? A lot of, you know, a lot of coverage of the arts in the papers is uh, and even in the acting profession only the other day Brian Cox was saying he thought that modern actors didn't have a, a, a sense of their history and uh, you know, uh, and, and that theatre was being subservient to television and film and stardom are, are you optimistic or do you share the pessimism that is often I think what Brian said and he that was another one who worked for me in the park did The Music Man and director Richard III I think there is an element of truth in that because there aren't the opportunities, you know, and you, you could join a company and make a living and you, you'd get an eight-month contract uh, and you created a family atmosphere, hence all these stories that you come out with and now you don't, you go and do one off and because I think actors are reluctant to go out of town, they'll go and do one play because they think television is where it's at. And I think that's one of the things I'd probably say to students in uh, drama school. Don't be uh, seduced by so-called fame. Because my w late wife was in a series called Police, uh, and um, when our son was born, she was on the front of the now defunct Evening News. She couldn't walk anywhere, but it was very difficult to have for her to find work afterwards, admittedly. And I think every actor has their little moment, this is the odd few who go on, you know, and they want to have their little moment of fame. 
and I suppose my moment of fame was running Regent's Park, which lasted for 20 years, so that's not bad. Well, uh, you've kindly given your time for that. I'm so pleased that we get uh, somebody whose you know, contribution to Doctor Who is comparatively small, but you've still entered into the spirit of this, and, and it's been absolutely fantastic. So uh, the only remuneration you get is, is for a, a charity of your choice to benefit from the, uh, the hopefully the generosity of the listeners. So who would you like them to donate to? To the Macmillan nurses. And the final question is, this was nominally convened to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. You're about to set a, a, a direct the mousetrap, which is another great long institution. Um, but Doctor Who has lasted 50 years. Um, 52 now. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who are listening to this? I recently met some at, at uh, a signing, and I was amazed, A, that they remembered what I was in, and I thought they were the nicest people, and I learned from them. <clears throat> Some of the photographs depressed me, because I thought, did I really look like that once? Um, I was quite good looking at one point. Um, I just think for Doctor Who, it's, it's incredible since it came back, the popularity of it, because I know when I was in it, it was considered, I think, I may, Fishanders may say I'm wrong, certainly a children's program and I don't think it is that I think it does have an appeal for children but I think for adults as well and the technology involved now is just phenomenal I mean it's major television uh, well the fans of Doctor Who know but they must be really gratified to see how it's grown I remember watching it with William Hartnell when it started and was it William Russell it was yeah and a creaky old telephone box and like I said about Ted and the dinosaur it's just phenomenal how it's taken off so long may it continue Ian Talbot thank you very much thank you that was great I hope that was okay Sincere thanks to Ian. That was a feature-length one, but I didn't want to cut anything. What a fascinating fellow who had been on my hit list for quite a while, uh, and I hadn't managed to get hold of him, and then Phantom Films did it for me. So thanks to Paul and Dexter at Phantom Films. Do go to their signings and events, because they're uh, lovely fellows uh, who, who do it, really do it for their love. Um, uh, so Ian's charity is Macmillan Nurses, which... Uh, is well known to this podcast, but a reminder, Macmillan, M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N dot org dot U-K, Macmillan. And before you write in, uh, Ian is of course not the only uh, OB you've done for Who's Round, because um, Russell T. Davis is one. But nonetheless, maybe if you could pop over, I think my Just Giving page will still be up, Just Giving Toby Haydoke. There aren't many of us. Um, to, to maybe bolster my total from the 10k run, which, uh, as I record this, is in the future, uh, but as you listen to it, will be in the past, um, for Triple C, which is a charity to give disabled children access to the arts. Any little bit you can help with that would also be appreciated. There's another Who's Round next week, but until then, thanks for listening. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Survivors, Series 6.
Norway is a mess. The death wiped out most of its population. Floods destroyed roads and entire towns. It will be a long road. I've traveled far and wide since the death, and I've seen what's coming. I was once part of a group that tried and sentenced a man for murder. We sentenced him to death. We killed him. And we'd got it wrong. I've got the biggest news since the death. We found a Russian professor by the name of Valentina Roskova. She has a cure for it. A cure? 200 people? All without symptoms? Oh, that's wonderful! <sighs> She's got me. If you try anything, I'll cut her throat. So you're going to give up? Throw in the towel? Tell me, what can we do? Because I'm damn sure there is something we can do. Don't just stand there. Brace yourself. And whatever you do... Abby? Craig? Friends together again. Big Finish. We love stories.